loved it. I'll send you a copy. Bam! Bitch went down. Welcome back to Horror Queers. We are talking British countryside. We're talking zombies as metaphors. We're talking lots of face makeup. I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. And we are joined today <laughs> by a special guest. David, are you over there? Uh, hi there. Thank you for having me. <laughs> uh, David, would you like to give yourself a brief introduction so people know who you are? Sure. Um, so I've been writing for a good five years now. Um, I was started writing for Movie Pilot in Berlin, and now I'm working as a freelancer in Austria, uh, writing for a bunch of places like High Snobiety, Digital Spy, New Now Next, and I'm super excited to be here. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having Oh No, thank you for coming. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's still early. I'm good. <laughs> we figured it would make sense to bring a Brit on to talk about a British uh, television show. So yeah, there are some extreme Britishisms. I think I was I was wondering if you guys were fully understanding the random phrases and bits. Like, were there any bits that you were struggling with, or that were just odd? I don't remember being any like particularly confused by anything. Uh, but I mean it. Yeah, no, I don't know. Maybe something will come up, and I'll be like, oh, yeah, I don't remember that. Uh, yeah. I was mostly just trying to absorb this world, which was a fascinating world. Yes, and maybe at this point we should probably mention we are talking about the television series In the Flesh, which ran on BBC Three for two years. We're talking about just the first series, though, so the first three episodes. Yes, and for some reason, listeners, if you're like, what the fuck, TV show? Um, yeah, three episodes. All of them are available either on Amazon Prime or Hulu. I'm sure there's other places too, but those are obviously the easiest places to get it. So, um, and it's actually, uh, the combined runtime is like two hours and 48 minutes. So it's like watching a really long movie. So suck it up. Yes. <laughs> suck it up. Uh, and yeah, it, it premiered on March 17th, 2013. The second season aired in 2014 and it did not get renewed for, I'm sorry, a third series. I, 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 <laughs> See there. See, Trace is already struggling. Wait, what the fuck's a series? I know. No, no. Like when I was like, like first, like trying to like get, not get into British television, but like, you know, learning about it. I remember being like series, like, cause again, for Americans, series is the, like the culmination of all the seasons. It's the oh, combined. Of course. Yeah, it's yeah. the entire run. So yeah. So I was like, oh, like series one. It's like, wait what so i mean and i don't understand why it has to be like that like first of all who who decided first that who named it first british brits or americans probably probably the queen probably some british involved okay I don't know. so so us Amer us americans should have just called it a fucking a series but you know whatever we, we just have to be different apparently <laughs> yes we firmly established we've already talked about this with your metric system uh oh yeah the americans are just weird you guys have to do your own thing absolutely yeah, it's it's silly, but anyway, well, um, okay, well, so I mean, uh, luckily because it's a TV show, there's no box office information to talk about. But um, I will say just for viewership, and I don't know how this compares for um, like how it tracks with other uh, British television shows, but mm -hmm. um, the episodes uh, viewership, you know, uh, the first episode had a six hundred sixty-eight thousand viewership. Episode two dropped significantly to three hundred ninety-two thousand. And then the third episode popped back up to 525,000. So it did a little bit better for the finale. Um, yeah. Reception. Yeah, I, was a bit, I was a bit confused by that because, like, 
why you know like why does everyone come back for the third one and miss the middle like that was quite a key segment i felt you know and i'm trying to think of the time period because i mean hulu was around in 2013 i don't know if this was on hulu back then though but you know it's normal for a second episode to drop off pretty significantly after the pilot Mm. because you know everyone is curious checks in and obviously this is a very unique show uh so you know like people people maybe just were interested but yeah the fact that that third episode had such a big bounce back but also because typically finales get a bump in ratings too yeah but then it's it's like three episodes you know so i'm not used to those really short seasons yeah whereas in the uk a three episode series a five six episode series this is commonplace this is part of the financial model that they use for making television so Mm -hmm. three episodes is not unusual whereas here in north america this would be considered a mini series right right and when like and i was looking because the second series has six episodes and it was called an extended series and i'm like no because <laughs> that would still be that would still be considered a mini series in america uh, for yeah. us it's like a marathon yeah it was a... <laughs> i mean i remember when like fx started doing 13 episode seasons and it was like well i mean i guess no because um HBO, like, really, they, they stuck with, like, you know, 10 to 13 episode seasons, and then FX kind of, like, mimicked that when they started doing Nip Tuck and stuff, original mm. programming. But it was very weird, you know? It's like, what? It's not 24 episodes? And now, <laughs> you know, 24 episode seasons are just, like, not as popular as they used to be. Oh, gosh, yeah. You yeah. could count on one hand how many we have, but I mean, it's this like, is just the difference in funding models, I find. Yeah, absolutely. So, a reception of the show, and I went with a reception for just the first season. Um, second season, both of them were very, very, very highly regarded, but the second season was a little bit better yeah. rated. Oh, but, really? Well, okay, but <laughs> the first <laughs> the first season has a Rotten Tomato score of 94%. The second season has 100%. So, I mean, like, you know, oh, wow. it's yeah. a difference, but it, that could be like one or two reviews, you know? That's yeah. interesting. But David, the audience... Have you seen both series? I have, but I I watched the second one when it first came out, so my memory's a bit hazy on it. But I I do remember thinking it was better better actually. Um, I feel because of the six episodes it gave them more time to flesh it out, and no pun intended. And yeah. I feel <laughs> as I realized as I said it, and um and also just there were the new characters, and I felt like they'd already really established that universe. You know, like which is quite often for these kind of shows anyway. You know, that's how it works. But uh, yeah, but that's not to say the first one's not strong. The first season's pretty contained into, like, its own world, and so I can imagine that we want to expand it in the second season, but it works that you don't remember it that well, since, I mean, obviously, people that are listening, I'm assuming, probably did not continue to watch the second series, but maybe I'm wrong. Also, I'm going to be using season and series interchangeably. I'm so sorry, guys. It's, it's really hard to adjust to that. It's fine. Yeah, Story it's of like my life. mapping your brain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so audiences loved it, too. You got an audience score of 97% on Rotten Tomatoes, um, and then, Joe, your favorite, Metacritic. Score of 76 out of 100 with an audience score of 8.1 out of 10. Okay. So not so, bad. No, I mean, people really, really dug it. I'm sorry. Uh, I, mean, I was just going to say, it's, uh, and it's funny as well, because when it first came out, people were a bit resistant because um, it came out on BBC Three, which was like a, a side channel. No one really cared about as much. And uh, it replaced another show in, the same, in a different time slot that had just been cancelled called Being Human, which was super popular. So there was a oh. bit of resentment. Yeah. Do you know Being Human? Yeah, I, 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 I've never seen it, but um, they remade that on Sci-Fi for America. <laughs> Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I was actually surprised because when I was going through the cast list trying to pull, you know, um, some of their past roles, I was shocked at how many of them. I was like, oh, I know that show. But then I was like, oh, it's the British version, <laughs> like the original, because us Americans literally copy everything. Sure. You do love to remake, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty insane. 
And yeah, I mean, and luckily, uh, also, I was kind of worried about going through like the crew for this episode, uh, this se- series. See, okay, wait, <laughs> you call <laughs> you call the first season a series. So, what is the show itself called? Just a show? Yeah. E- either show, or I mean, you can also use series for the whole bit, which is just unnecessarily confusing. But uh, yeah, yes. they're kind of interchangeable, to be honest. Uh, um, uh, I think we just we didn't figure our shit out in, in time, and that's how it worked out. <laughs> Yeah, sure. Um, but luckily, uh, the director, uh, the same person directed all three episodes, and the same team wrote all three episodes. Um, Johnny Campbell directed them, and he, honestly, he's done quite a bit of TV, but his most notable thing since this was um, the adaptation of J.K. Rowling's The Casual Vacancy, which I believe was an HBO miniseries, or maybe it was BBC. I'm not really sure. It was both. Okay. So it was made for the BBC, and then it gets picked up by HBO, which is what amc and hbo both frequently do now so they co-partner and then they there's a bit of a delay between when it airs in the uk and then when it airs in the us right 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 but then like something like killing eve or like um orphan black like those are all bbc oh it's bbc america which yeah that's right (laughs) okay (laughs) confuses it even more now (laughs) yeah But just to clarify, so Orphan Black was actually airing on BBC Three at the exact same time as in the Flash, or at least within the same year. Yeah, yeah, but, but I, I guess the um, Orphan Black kind of you know took off more in America, which is why it went on for what five seasons, four seasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the show was created by Dominic Mitchell, who, uh, this is really the only thing he's done, but he wrote all three episodes with Arthur T. Manderley. Um, Mitchell, um, the only thing he's really done is written an, ep- an episode of Westworld, which was also directed by director Johnny Campbell. And then Arthur Manderley, uh, he's done a bunch of TV, but the, <laughs> this is one of those ones that was remade in America. Uh, he did <laughs> Red Band Society, which was remade in America with Octavia Spencer and lasted for like 10 episodes. I don't even think it lasted that long, did it? No, it was 13 episodes. It aired 10 and was pulled from the schedule. There we go. Well, I haven't even like heard a, of it, to be honest. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a treacly, like, sick kids in the hospital, make a makeshift family kind of thing. Yeah, and Octavia Spencer was, like, the the nurse ratchet of the show, but, like, she was, like, you know, had a heart of gold or something. I don't know. It was, like, right after The Help came out, so, like, she was kind of at the top of her game. Uh, okay. The good ratchet. A shitty <laughs> yeah. television show. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I I haven't seen it, so I don't know, but clearly no one else wanted to. Yeah, and um, I mean, again, I don't want to go through like, really the whole cast, but I mean, really just like, you know, your main players are Luke Newberry as uh, our protagonist, Kieran, Emily Beckin, who is my favorite as Amy. Yes. Yes, so good. She's fantastic, and she's also in The Casual Vacancy, by the way. And then uh, Harriet Keynes as Kieran's sister, Jem, and David Walmsley as, as Kieran's lover slash best friend, Rick. So... Joe, I'm intrigued to what your plot synopsis is. Like, how long is this thing? Okay, so I've cheated, and I just stole the episode synopses from Wikipedia. So it's okay. about the same length it normally is. Yeah, those are short. I read those as I was watching the episodes. Yeah, so they're, they'll mostly cover what people need to know in case they have not. Uh, though we should clarify, as always, we are spoiling. So if you have not watched the first series... We'd encourage you to go and do so now. As Trey said, it's under three hours. So really, it's just like watching a movie. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, in the flash, here we go. So episode one, Kieran Walker, one of thousands of individuals affected by partially deceased syndrome or PDS, returns home to Rorton. He has been subjected to months of rehabilitation and medication at a special defended unit specifically designed to keep the PDS sufferers in. 
The government has set an agenda of acceptance and tolerance. However, a cauldron of brutal anti-rotter sentiment exists and is gathering support, especially within the church, and it persists among the Human Volunteer Forces, HVF, a self-designated militia created to patrol the North during the Rising that refuses to disband. So that's a very broad overview of episode one, which is really just introducing the characters and sending Kieran home to deal with uh, some not-so-thinly-veiled racism, homophobia stuff. Yeah. Episode two. Kieran feels trapped at home and escapes to his grave, where he is reunited with his old hunting partner, Amy Dyer, who persuades him to take a dangerous day trip. He discovers that Rick, his best friend who he had a romantic interest in and thought was killed by an IED in Afghanistan, is back in town, so he visits him at the local pub. After an awkward reunion, Kieran finds himself on a hunting mission in the woods with members of the HVF, where the night patrol has reported live, rabid rotters roaming free. Kieran persuades them to hand the rotters in for a reward rather than kill them. And finally, episode three, which wraps everything up. Kieran visits the supermarket where he used to hunt, which brings back memories of when Jem spared his life. The siblings then confront their past issues and drop in to see the Lancasters, parents of the girl he killed. Kieran begins to feel better, but must say goodbye to Amy, who is leaving Warden in search of the undead prophet, who is kind of like a zombie messiah that posts videos on the internet. At the end of the episode, tragedy strikes Kieran after Bill kills Rick. So Bill is the leader at the HVF. Rick is Kieran's lover. Claiming he is not the real Rick and leaving the body leaning against Kieran's garage. Kieran storms in to confront Bill but ultimately leaves. And Bill is then shot by Ken Burton, whose PDS-afflicted wife was murdered by Bill at the end of the first episode. Which, to whoever wrote the synopses, you maybe could have put that in the description of the first episode. I know. (laughs) It's kind of significant. So that is your very loose plot summary. Because this is a television show, of course, we have quite a bit more than this. This really leans into the plot, whereas I would argue that the show leans into a lot more of the emotional character-based drama. So Yeah, and, and there's also a couple more subplots. Like, like I mean, which I'm going uh, I'm to I'm try to avoid, like, predicting what happened in the second series but you know there's like a burgeoning romance between um philip and amy that you know is kind of introduced Mm -hmm. philip is a city councilor who appears sympathetic to the pds sufferers but then is also responsible for like tagging their houses yes oh yeah yeah now i will say so the first episode i mean i is the weakest of the three to me but i think it's because it has to do so much to get you into this world Mm -hmm. It's a lot of heavy lifting. It is. And I definitely liked every episode like more and more as they went on. Yeah, it doesn't hurt that episode two introduces Amy, who is, honest to God, the life of the fucking party. Like, yeah. She is, I think, by far the most energetic and enthusiastic character on the entire series. So it's like when she gets introduced, you're like, oh, okay, it's not just going to be dour English people dealing with a bunch of repressed <laughs> feelings. Which, no offense, David. I'm sure sure Brits are lovely. How dour are you? (laughs) On a a scale, um, (laughs) depends. Well, I feel like some people might not like to hear this, but the further north you get, maybe the more dour it gets. But I say say that coming from the south. So, But that's actually kind of a hilariously apropos comment because I think it's really significant that this series is set in the north part of the country. But it's a fake town, right? Yeah, yeah, it's fake. But yeah, I do think it's interesting because I think they even mentioned that in the first episode. They, I think there's a throwaway line about um, about 
the, the way the zombies have been reintroduced into society was because of the southerners and like we were blamed mm-hmm. for this soft approach i suppose and the hvf also had to like they're self-created by the locals because they are so isolated in the north that apparently the government more or less didn't help them during the rising so they had to create this militia to patrol and provide their own safety which is i think one of the reasons why they now refuse to disband yeah for sure and i think um obviously and then there's all that symbolism anyway of that kind of small town phobia and resentment anyway and i think it's it's the perfect setting to kind of build that up which that's that's interesting like like the british north is kind of similar to the american south because the (laughs) um the 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 south the southern states and your texas mississippi louisiana arkansas alabama like they're the ones that are known for being the less um liberal of the you know areas of the u.s or i guess really the midwest too that's kind of like kind of in there but the south you know is like i mean civil war (laughs) yeah yeah i mean So I guess one of the things that we should probably clarify right off the top is that this is a series that is built on a fairly obvious metaphor and like zombieism equals homosexuality for quite a bit of this. And then, of course, the HVF, I think you can fairly easily associate with things like the people who still have Confederate flags or nazism and that kind of stuff well the allegory or metaphor is very on the nose for a lot of this like i mean it's like super obvious but you can really plug in any quote-unquote other for homosexuality now of course since kieran and rick are gay that obviously plugs in easier and since all of us are queer we are plugging that in but i mean you could plug in any kind of minority or other group i mean this also like goes back to nazism in the 1940s yeah i mean i think one of the reasons why this series either does or does not work for people is because the metaphor for zombies and homosexuality is so obvious like i think we're often used to having to project a social or political message onto zombies because they're i mean that's one of the reasons why zombies have lasted so long as monsters because you can really just kind of plug anything into them depending on you know oh okay we've got zombies in a mall now we're talking about capitalism and consumerism Mm. we've got you know a black man facing off against zombies we've got race related issues and so Mm -hmm. on so obviously romero was kind of the the master at introducing some of this but you can go back all the way to you know voodoo haitian kind of things that were happening back in the 50s and 40s so there's a long historical legacy of it. I actually look, because, you know, obviously, like, the, yeah, the zombie subgenre has a, it's a really easy way to, like, you know, inject social commentary. But luckily, hopefully some of our listeners, um, I don't think, so <laughs> this is, like, kind of not related, but kind of. I was reading, like, comments on um, Bloody Disgusting's Ma review, and someone was commenting, like, I'm so happy they, you know, did this with a black woman and they didn't do any unnecessary social commentary. It's just, oh like, that God. would just ruin the movie. Wow. And I'm like, you're, <laughs> you're so fucking <laughs> stupid. <laughs> Oh, yeah. The I mean, home. I think to me, that's yeah. one of the reasons why I'm so attracted to this particular text is because it's it's that much more, I hesitate to say accessible, but it's it's a little bit more obvious. So I think it doesn't have to spend its time dancing around the fact that this is what it's trying to do. And it can then just embrace that and use it to its storytelling advantage. Mm-hmm. I was I was literally about to basically say the same thing. I, I think it's refreshing in a way that it's more brazen and more explicit in a way with its queerness. Because like you say, normally we're projecting ourselves into these situations. Um, so I think it's actually really important that they can tackle that and then you don't have to skirt around the issue. And there's... 
it's less interpretation, more what's the meaning behind this. So I'm curious to hear, I mean, partially Trace, I want to hear your thoughts because you're the only one of us who has not seen this before. Right. As attentive listeners will recall, I name dropped wanting to do this episode way back in the very first episode in Speed Dating. So Trace, you said you <laughs> wanted to do Jennifer's Body, and that was our third episode. Mm-hmm. And I said I wanted to do In the Flesh, and here we are, like... In the upper 20s. So, okay, I confess, and I'm going to sound like a huge douchebag for this. So, first, when you're like TV shows, like, oh, fuck, I don't want to watch a whole season of a TV, a whole series of a TV show. And because I, I didn't know it was three episodes. And then I also, and again, this is going to make me sound really small minded, I thought it was going to be foreign. And so, and I, I have watched, like, I watched them um, The Returned, which could also, you know, or I'm sorry, Les Revenants, which could be compared to this in, on mm-hmm. a kind of similar level. But it was kind of one of those was like, oh, I don't like want to have to watch a whole foreign series of TV, of a TV show in a week <laughs> so it was very much like i don't think we're going to be able to do that but then of course you know when i saw oh a it's british uh and i know that makes me seem small-minded like <laughs> nope I, I have no problem with subtitles but again like in my mind i'm, I'm like i'm like okay i was thinking it was gonna be 13 subtitled episodes and so i was like that's just a lot to ask of me and to ask of our listeners <laughs> right. so i but again knowing what it is now it's like yeah okay like I was being too judgmental. Okay, so now that you've seen all three of these episodes, what are your thoughts? No, I mean, like, I, I, I'm not as enamored with it as you two are. And I think maybe, though, like, that might be, like, because I probably need to watch the second series, which is, you know, just six episodes. But I, I do like it a lot. I'm interested, though, so because I've seen, you know, Live on, I've seen The Cured, the Ellen Page zombie movie that's basically kind of cribbed this idea. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I was going to say, yeah. we might have to dedicate a whole section to that. Well, and so I'm wondering if I would have felt differently about it had I seen it first. It's very much, you know, like, like when you have, you know, younger viewers and they're like, oh, well, like, the original is really boring. And it's like, well, you have to kind of look at it through that time period of when it came out because people hadn't seen anything like this before. So even though, like, the remake or something that's, like, you know, like, cribbing from it might be more entertaining to you it's not definitely not as original which makes it slightly less impressive so right i mean i did like this show i it man that first episode did take me a bit because i don't love kieran as a protagonist i think he's a bit bland yeah he's a little bland i mean like I, honestly any of the other characters like I, I was more invested in you know rick's stuff with his dad anything with amy uh, i kind of hated jim too though she was a huge cunt and i really had an issue <laughs> like, well particularly in the first episode right <laughs> yes well because because she's introduced like you know the rebellious daughter who like doesn't talk to her parents and then of course when kieran comes in like you know she doesn't accept him and obviously that's explained later as to why that is the case like there's like a very specific instance that um kieran doesn't remember but it mm. was very hard to get into it i loved shirley uh who's philip's mom who like oh, you know yeah. the nurse who the nurse the treatment she, and she was everybody. great she deserves a spinoff for sure oh 100 <laughs> percent. and obviously even though i don't like bill i was i was fascinated by the rea- the interactions with his son and his his denial of his pds status like that that was and even when rick dies like that scene when kieran confronts him which finally i was like oh good kieran's doing something that i care about that's awesome when he basically says, you know, that wasn't Rick, he's going to come back when, you know, Jesus resurrects all the dead. <laughs> it, oh, it's so good. I, I really, really enjoyed that. I can imagine that people who have had difficulty with their family as part of their coming out process may, I, don't, I hesitate to say tr- feel triggered, but this is probably going to raise some uncomfortable feelings because 
I mean, Trace and you and I have talked about our coming out and how, Mm -hmm. all things considered, we didn't have a very hard time of it in terms of the grand scale. And and yeah, grand scale. Like, we definitely had issues with parents and like, you know, whatever. But it wasn't like, you know, there was no disownment happening. And I think to me, one of the things that I really enjoy about the show is the relationship between Bill, who is you know, this this gruff, kind of old-fashioned, masculine, you know, I've got my gun, I'm organizing this posse, and he feels like his worldview is very much rigid and defined. And the reintroduction of his son, who is both gay and a zombie, which he seems unable to process either one of them. And yeah. whether you want to say <laughs> it's like he can't process one because of the other, or he just refuses to process both is... I mean, I think we can have a a conversation about that. But I love this idea that, you know, it's not just that his son comes back and he's like, oh, my my dead gay son is back. He's also like, oh, my son is gay and dead. And I would rather kill him than have to process either of those two things. Yeah. And dude, I mean, I know this is like the very end of the app, like the the series, but... I knew, I felt like Bill was going to kill him, but I, I love that they didn't show it. And the reveal of, like, you know, his body up against Kieran's garage is really, really heartbreaking. Like, I almost, honestly almost cried a little bit whenever that happened. <laughs> that yeah. was a savage moment, for sure. It was bad. And, and also when um when the mum realizes, well, her husband's dark. Yes! Oh, that man. was dark. That like, was a breakdown, for well, sure. Well, it was so frustrating, though, because I actually think that, I mean, you know, I think, and David, you can maybe comment on this because we don't know really what your coming out story was. But, you know, I feel like a lot of male queer people probably had an easier time coming out to their mom than their dad. And that, that dynamic between the mom and how she just wouldn't say anything to that dad. And, like, mm-hmm. she was just, she was cool with Rick, just happy he was back. But, like, whenever the dad did something or was, like, obviously, like, in denial, she wouldn't do anything and it's just tragic because it's like i mean you know even though bill does kill rick it you know it's kind of mirrors you know if if someone a a gay teenager committed suicide and like it would take that to get someone to wake up which also happens in this series yes and um though the way she she's almost always to the end even she's still quite subservient to her husband you know i i I was quite shocked rewatching it when she was bringing him a beer as Mm -hmm. the confrontation was happening and i was like this isn't really the time like i I get the need for alcohol but like yeah it was uh it was it was um just it's so sad to watch her be that broken the eye acting when she realizes what has happened like it's just Oh, it's 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 crushing. Yeah. I kind of loved all the mums as well in different ways. I think all the mums yes. had great moments. You know, like in the first episode of Kieran's mum when she whacks out the chainsaw suddenly. Oh <laughs> um, my gosh, yes. That was, uh, I mean, it was a bit surreal at first. It seemed a bit out of character, but I felt like as you got to know her in subsequent episodes, it kind of rang more true, hopefully. Especially because they've all been through the uprising. You know, I guess it's easy to forget that they've actually lived through an apocalypse already, but we just haven't mm-hmm. seen it. Well, okay. Uh, I'm trying not to make us dance around too, too much, but I think Mm -hmm. to me, that was the other thing that I initially really gravitated to is I had never seen a TV show or a movie that dealt with zombies after the fact. Like everything always wants to talk to you about this is what it's like at the beginning when it's chaos and nobody knows what the fuck is going on and is the army coming. So the idea that we more or less parachute into this world years after the fact and the show dares to explore how would society rebuild because i mean i think we always like to think that something could be solved and 
you could resume some sort of normalcy. Mm-hmm. And the show argues for the fact that like this world has been completely upended and there's no going back. It's the people who struggle who are unwilling to bend and recognize the new world who have the most struggle and who end up committing the most violence. Well, and I wonder, because I, I, be, I, I it's been on for like 10 fucking years, but because The Walking Dead, I think, started three years before this. I think it was like a 2010 start. So I wonder mm. if the the like smash success of that show helped this, this one get made, even though that show is still, even after 10 years, <laughs> very much a standard like post-apocalyptic zombie world. And this takes a much more unique approach to it. I think it definitely helped because um, BBC Three, the, the channel it first aired on, was actually, they didn't have a big budget. They didn't have many original shows at all, actually. Um, I think I read, I don't know if that's true, but I read they would only have one drama at a time. They would have more comedies because it was bigger mm-hmm. hits. But uh, Well, and I think that's one of the reasons, it's one of the reasons that this show got cancelled is because yeah. the, I think they did have more than a few, but then their budget got slashed in the second season of the show, oh, so yeah. in 2014. And then that's when they pulled the plug on the show. So it's not because it didn't have good ratings or because it didn't have the critical acclaim, but because they mm. were like, uh, we're broke. Yeah, it got, nom- it got nominated for a BAFTA as well, I think. Um, so uh, the British TV Award. So yeah, it was doing really well, I think. And a Glad so, Media Award. Oh yeah, did it did it win in the end? Was it just nominated? I can't remember. No, it was just nominated. I don't think it won. But I mean, you know, it, it's not surprising considering the subject matter. Yeah, and it's pretty good for a British show to hop over five years ago i think (laughs) yeah (laughs) pretty proud well okay so i know you said you didn't want to like dance around joe but you know i mean we we can jump into this cure discussion now and it it doesn't it doesn't have to be too long but and listeners if you don't know the cured i want to say it's 2016 but it's a movie with alan page where it's almost the exact same concept where zombies you know it's it's years after that happened and they've discovered a cure that can revert zombies back to a like basically a human state and they're being reintegrated back into society. And Ellen Page has a son, and her husband was killed by a zombie in the outbreak. And her husband's brother, so her ex-brother-in-law, was a zombie and comes back to live with her and her son as she, like, she helps him get you know rehabilitated back into society. I don't know if we want to kind of spoil the, like, the kind of emotional reveal of the movie. Uh, let's just say that there's... There's obviously more to the relationship and the so the it's Ellen Page is not the main character. It's no, the brother. It's the brother, but he has the same kind of trauma that Kieran has, where he remembers what he did as a zombie and he has a lot of guilt about it. And there's obviously an emotional catharsis. And I guess the other big thing about that film is that he is friends with another person that he was in the system with and that person feels very disgruntled yeah. about the way that he's being treated because uh, he used to be a barrister which is a, a lawyer for people who don't speak british and <laughs> yeah, uh, i didn't know that <laughs> <laughs> but he can't get a job above a janitorial staff and he ends up getting involved in a rebellion and there's a suggestion or people have read that there is a, a homosexual inclination between more so the the barrister and the main character. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Sorry. I, well, I was going to say this. Um, no, go ahead. Because 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 uh, you haven't seen the second season yet. I, again, I don't want to spoil too much if you're interested. But yeah. actually, some of the themes in the second season, I think, play an even more important role in the cured, as it were. I feel Absolutely. like the cured took a lot from season two, which was even yeah. more frustrating for me to watch the cured then. 
Yeah, I I really struggled. I ended up reviewing The Cured uh, because it played here at TIFF. And so I reviewed it for Bloody. And I basically had to spend the entire review. Like, I think I opened by saying, if you've seen In the Flesh, you've already seen The Cured. And then I had to just, like, put it aside because I was so frustrated. Because, and again, I'm doing that thing where I look at conventional reviews from places like Variety. Variety yeah. panned In the Flesh and said that it was stilted and not interesting and it was just too kind of subdued. And then they gave a, not quite a rave, but they gave a very enthusiastic review to The Cure <laughs> saying that it felt fresh and it was really innovative. <sighs> and I was just like, Variety, damn it. you are fucking idiots. Like, I feel like they shouldn't be allowed to review genre in general. Yeah, I feel like you always mention that variety whenever you're bringing up genre, especially like indie or like smaller <laughs> scale genre filmmaking. But that, that is something that I was going to say that was like, yeah, the rebellion plot that's introduced in the first season, first series of In the Flesh. And mm-hmm. they have the drug that, you know, like it's like a cocaine drug that makes them go like zombie-ish again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's introduced in the first episode and not, it's like mentioned again later when Kieran's on the internet, but then mm-hmm. it's really dropped. So I'm assuming that comes into play in the second series. Uh, in a that's big way. the entire so, yeah. second series. Okay. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but that's in- interesting though, because I mean, again, I- I'm speculating. Did they know they were going to get a second series? Did they, because this one does work as a contained story. And if you remove the rebellion plot, it feels even more contained. I feel like they probably did just because like yeah there was elements like that and also I feel like Amy in particular I felt like there mm-hmm. was there was planting seeds for more I, gotcha. I can't actually yeah. confirm that yeah I got the impression it was one of those like we're going to lay these kernels and if slash when we get a second series, then we'll be able to pay them off in a bigger way. Yeah. And you, you kind of use it as the through line to say like, Hey, BBC three, you should definitely pick us up for another series because we've got a lot more ideas to work with. Well, and that, that, that is how people should do TV shows. I hate it when like it, cause again, like it's getting renewed, at least in America, I don't know how it is for Britain, but um, it's not a, a sure thing like it used to be anymore because like ratings like there's so many factors when determining ratings and i hate it when a show that's like on the bubble when they end it with a clip a major cliffhanger and i'm like that don't fuck your audience that way do what this show did plant seeds and say hey like you know these are things we can expand on because this this one like i mean you can see where it could continue but it's a satisfying ending for this series yeah Whereas if you had have ended the series with something along the lines of Kieran discovering Rick's body yes. and then him just storming off and it'd be like, ooh, what's going to happen? Or, you know, it like it would have been so unsatisfying, right? 100%. Um, I wanted to mention, I actually read the same variety review as you did. Um, and because, <laughs> uh, yeah, I was interested to see what the American perspective was. And yeah, it kind of pissed me off because it, uh, <laughs> it went, it said something like, Walking Dead, this ain't. And I was like, yeah. isn't that the whole fucking point? Like, I was like, it's not trying to be The Walking Dead in any shape or form. And yet, that was the obvious lazy comparison. So that was pretty frustrating. Well, and I was going to say, too, it wasn't The Cured British, but The Cured is Irish. So yeah. it's it's still not American, but it's, I mean, they clearly, they knew what The Cured was. They had to. <laughs> For sure. Closer to home. Even in the variety review of The Cured, though, they talk about how it's not, it may not satisfy people who are expecting, you know, high octane action. And they're clearly talking about things like The Walking, the Walking Dead, Dead still. I think what's happened is that since the advent of fast zombies or running zombies from 28 Days Later, there's now this assumption that yeah. every zombie movie will be that or the Dawn of the Dead remake or The Walking mm-hmm. Dead where, you know, it's constant 
peril and it doesn't really matter what you do it's an action film with these monsters and that's what's so interesting to me because like zombies have never been my favorite subgenre be it i mean i like the romero well, some of the romero films i like i like <laughs> i like snyder's remake i like 28 weeks later more than i like 28 days later which oh, might be too. Oh, oh yay <laughs> <laughs> um but, but but okay but joe so that's what's interesting though because 28 weeks later is undeniably more of a typical zombie film than 28 days later yes. which is more of like a, a drama yeah i would actually put 28 days later in league with something like in the flesh and the cured because yeah. It's far more interested in the societal implications than the actual rage virus people. Right. But it's fascinating to me that this comes out. And I mean, again, like this movie, uh, this movie, this this series got 94% of Rotten Tomatoes. So I guess Variety is like the one negative review <laughs> that it got. They're not even negative. They're just, they, they're missing the point. Yeah. But like, you know, what, this comes out, which is a very, very, very fresh take on the zombie subgenre. Like... Say what you will about how it's executed, I guess, but just the concept of it to say it's like not good or not, you know, interesting or fascinating or whatever. Yeah, not exciting enough. But yeah, that just means that, okay, like, so you don't watch zombie things ever, apparently, or you've just seen The Walking Dead. I'm yeah. World War Z. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like your your cultural cue is okay, what is the lowest common denominator that I can reference? Which does make sense, right? If you're thinking about writing. And we're all writers, so we know that sometimes you're kind of told, oh, don't don't go for the obscure reference, go for something that every reader is going to be able to understand, right? Right. But I think that that really diminishes the impact and the intelligence that In the Flesh has, where they're saying, yeah, we, we know that you've got a general idea about what zombies are and what they do, but then they're introducing ideas like how would they be cured? How would they be... like? like the makeup the makeup and the contacts to me the very first time i watched this it was so fucking genius it's visually fascinating but it's also just a really easy narrative idea to say okay these people look fucking dead but mm -hmm. you've got to somehow find a way to reassure regular people that things are okay so it's like the surface veneer like really the whole series is about people putting on appearances that they're okay or not okay with right. the current state of the world and then you've got this visual fucking reminder that is just so obvious but yet people are like oh no like just put on some concealer and some contacts and you're completely fine like yeah. It's so smart. And it, it, and it ties into that whole, you know, it, particularly for gay people, if you're trying to pass, say, in straight society. Mm -hmm, so it's that mm -hmm. physically passing manifest, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, are you mask? Yes, girl. Yes, put my contacts in. <laughs> uh, no, but like, it's, yeah, it's like, you know, and I, I even still meet some people today, like some other queer people who like behave in a completely different way when they're, say, at a gay bar than when they are, you know, just like out in the general public. Yeah, it's all about doing what you can to either fit in or stand out. And I think that's one of the reasons why Amy is such a dynamic character in yeah. the series, right? Because she is unabashedly unafraid of stepping out but it also ends up coming back to hurt her right yeah. it, mm -hmm. like she has she has that relationship with philip and it seems sweet and then it turns toxic and then she gets more or less sexually assaulted in her own home just for daring to be who she is yeah that was dark but i mean she's still i still find yeah a very inspiring character the way she I know she had that moment when she was thinking about leaving, but she still ends up becoming, like like you say, the force for change. especially And also in season two, more so, but I don't want to go into that. But uh... Yeah, she has a big 
arc that pays off very nicely in season yeah one. and you can see the, the seeds the same absolutely in season one for that and then one of my favorite sequences is that scene in the i think the second episode when the, her and kieran go to the pub and yeah. she just displays her you know uniqueness and you know essentially rebellion just being like fuck you guys i'm gonna come here <laughs> what's the cheapest drink you have uh like milk or orange juice or something she goes two of those Love it. Oh, yeah, lemonades. That was it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> lemonades, yes. <laughs> and she's like going, oh, natural. Which is funny because it's such a contrast to like what everybody else is doing at that bar, right? Like that is clearly the local watering hole where all of the town drunks are just congregating. And from opening, she's onwards, like, yeah. hi, I'm going to come in here and I'm going to get a fucking lemonade. Like you could not get a drink that's more distinct and different. Well, and she can't even drink it. <laughs> like she's. <No>. She <laughs> I also love the scene where, I think, again, it's in the second episode when they go to that fun fair. Well, like, I say yeah. fun fair, but yeah. it's pretty basic. But, uh, you know, when they're on that ride and, uh, and they're spinning around and she's talking about uh, smashing the clock and not being afraid of death. And um, it's really fascinating to see the, kind of the psychological impact as well of, like, living for your own death and then coming back and actually how mm-hmm. freeing that is. Um, mm-hmm. I, I guess, again, metaphorically, dealing, perhaps it's facing and dealing with your own insecurities and your own otherness no matter what that might be and can you imagine having like being self-aware enough to say i know that i'm different like i know that i'm undead and people are afraid of me because i represent their literal worst fear yeah and still having to be able to process and live your life in some way she feels like the the queerest character in a way even though she's not actually lgbtq at all no 100 percent catalyst for change you know Mm-hmm. she's the activist yeah. that carnival scene is i mean her introductions in the cemetery but like that carnival scene is like her next scene and that's kind of your big like oh it's so refreshing coming off that first episode with kieran as like you know the centerpiece and then you get this other character who is such like a polar opposite of what he's like it really injects a necessary life into the show that that first episode was lacking and it's important that she gets introduced in the same episode as rick so if mm-hmm. we're starting to pivot towards rick like amy is this dynamic vibrant true to herself you know absolutely queer icon and then you've got rick who is totally masked totally closeted bro hey to the max like yeah. you know i love the fact that he is a he he died in service and mm-hmm. part of that regimented systematic you know formulaic thing that he is he's plugged into which is it makes so much sense for the character that he would bow to his father's will because of all of the things that he's had in the past but then i love it because he's a very different representation of not just zombieism like we've got kieran who's you're you're sort of bland unassuming maybe a little bit fey and then you've got amy who's your vibrant bright true to herself and then rick is that in between like the three of them form a very very interesting triad yeah mm. i was gonna say tripod but triad definitely makes more sense <laughs> <laughs> tripod something different <laughs> yeah the, the way he suppresses himself i guess because of his father and his own internal hatred is a marked contrast I, I thought it was quite funny with all the um the posters of women in his room as well and the dad's constant oh, like oh you yes. flirt in a girl mate and like <laughs> It was. Uh, I think that probably feels quite real, you know. No, that, yeah. that that's the interesting thing is because like even though you know the, the zombieism is like the, the the literal thing on display here, there is still queerness in it. But Rick is the only character that really has to deal with rejection on both fronts, on um, both being a zombie and or I'm sorry, a PDS in, uh, infected sufferer, sufferer, yeah. sufferer, and being gay. But 
it was really the scene when he's vomiting uh, the black uh. vomit in the urinal of that pub that I was like, oh, fuck. Like, and it really... Because, again, trying to stay closeted and being, you know, like, hiding who you are is torturous on the inside. You know, it's like you literally just can't be yourself. And watching him vomit that stuff up is such a good physical manifestation of that, like, torture that you feel. I love the fact that it's just to prove how out of sorts he is and how he doesn't fit into the the regimented boxes is that he's also not even vomiting into a toilet he's vomiting into the urinal which is like not the right way to do it like you're not fitting in yeah and it's going everywhere i was like oh god i hate to be a gender in that place <laughs> i mean it didn't look the cleanest in the first place but yes that was definitely not the <laughs> yeah. um because like, like yeah rick seems to be even in denial of his homosexuality and it's just like it's such a frustrating watch but like you is anyone who's ever been in that situation, you can understand it. Yeah, yeah. we've all known a Rick. Maybe some of us have been a Rick. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. What did you think about... I was really interested in the way they don't really show the queerness. You know, there's no real affection between the characters because they're trying to hide it. Um, I went, right. In season two, it, it changes, I would, I would say. But uh, in season one, it's still very much just verbal. I wonder what did you guys think about that? I mean, again, this is talking about growing expectations growing, going in because, you know, all I knew was, oh, it's a gay zombie show. So I was like, okay, cool. I definitely expected the gayness to be a little bit more explicit so when it wasn't i I was not not taken aback but i was i was surprised Mm. but i think that makes it easier to digest for hetero audiences because obviously anytime you show you know queer intimacy queer actual physical sex it's you know some people can handle it others like even if they're accepting of you know yeah, you're going to lose an audience potentially. Yes. And so, and I don't know if maybe that was why they made that deliberate creative choice or not, but it makes sense to me. And I, I don't think the show needed any kind of, you know, well, it didn't need like the graphic sexuality. However, yeah, I would, I would have liked to have seen like a couple kisses or two. Yeah. To me, I expected it to go this way, if only because when you meet Rick, it's so obvious that he's not willing to accept certain things about himself that I couldn't imagine him giving in to any kind of affection. So I think the the closest that I really felt any kind of intimacy is when they're in the car in the second episode en route to the quarry to potentially deal with the escape dangerous rotters. And you really start to get a sense of what their relationship was like before everything happened. But it does feel like a chaste almost i mean it, it's hard to remember too that they're meant to be teenagers like kieran is supposed to be 17 years old i mean people are fucking at 17 in england yeah <laughs> well i mean in america people are fucking at 17 um but <laughs> but it feels it feels often very childlike like i saw one review where they compared kieran to peter pan and i was like yes oh like like a stunted like yeah child. like he's 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 almost like a child, like he's a baby in the way that, and I I don't want to suggest that that's one of the contributing factors to why he ended up committing suicide, because I do think that, A, there's a bit of a danger in saying like, oh, if you're more obviously queer presenting, life is going to be harder for you, and you're far more likely to consider suicide. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think that that's true. I think people struggle with things in different ways, but I liked that kieran is at the end of the day he's a little bit more creative he's a little bit more introverted he's a little bit more pretty like he's he's not quite masculine um because i think there's a lot of us and i'm gonna put myself into that box as well that 
we're we're not like super butch guys like we're not oh, masculine yeah. i i couldn't hide my queerness i can't from either. people like when i came out people were like yeah girl what took you so long <laughs> yeah i hate that so i i resonate with kieran for that reason like he he feels like a very real person to me and then with rick i flip the opposite way and i'm just like why can't you be softer like kieran because at the end of the day I don't know. It's it's hard to feel things for Rick because he seems so adamant about not accepting who he is. Okay, so maybe y'all can because I'm gonna I'm gonna admit something here. Maybe y'all can relate, or maybe you won't. But there's definitely like so I came out when I was 16, and there's definitely like um a lot of people I knew, like friends or acquaintances, came out after high school, and Mm -hmm. I felt like such like a not rage, but such like a fucking like. Why Why couldn't you do that with me? So I wasn't the only one. Why did you leave me to hang and be the poster child? Yeah, resentment, you know? And so even still, when I see someone who's like in their 30s and they're still like closeted, it sounds so mean because it's like, you know, you're not them. It, everyone has to come out in their own time. But there is a certain resentment where I'm like, I just wish that, you know, you could do this. But obviously, you know, if I stop to think about it, it's like, well, you know, it's a very personal thing to come out and it takes a lot of, you know... I don't want to say bravery because it's like, then it's like I'm saying that these people aren't brave for like not coming out, but it's yeah, for me coming out at such a young, a young ish age. Although I guess now that you have fucking kids coming out when they're like 10, which yeah. is so foreign to me, <laughs> Same, <laughs> but, but I mean, yeah, I remember like, you know, going to high school reunion and I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, God damn it. But it's it's a personal thing, so I, I get that frustration. One of my one of my best friends didn't come out to me until many 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 years after I came out to him, and, and but he was like, oh, I knew at the time, and I was like, why didn't you tell me at the time? <laughs> that would have been a much nicer experience. But like you say, it's very subjective and it's very personal. So it's funny with Rick because like you do see the influence in his life too, though you know. So I did, I did feel sympathetic to a point, but it was just it was still frustrating. It was like you clearly like Kieran very much, just fucking get on with it a bit you know and like when his life is in danger maybe don't just leave him a phone call and hope for the best from a phone box as well i love that (laughs) okay so if y'all want to move on from rick i actually would like to talk about Jem. i thought it was an odd choice not odd maybe but like that that they made her a female because if we're going for this like you know queer allegory here and maybe it's maybe it's different but i feel like you know a lot of times for a gay man to come out a teenager it's usually like if someone's gonna have a problem with it it's typically a brother as opposed to a sister who might be more understanding but that's also i'm, I'm like putting my own experiences on that but isn't that more refreshing in a way as well that they did do that with a woman with a sister you know like it was like the fact it's yeah. unexpected because some of the storylines are how do I say not not obvious but you know they, they follow a certain clear trope and a clear path so like by subverting it in that yeah, it's way it, on the nose yeah exactly so yeah. by subverting it in that way it keeps it a bit fresher perhaps maybe that's why well I didn't really feel like she had an issue with his queerness you know I think part of it is that the the storytelling for Jim is kind of backwards compared to everybody else where it's more or less going forwards like with Jem, she starts off and she seems very abrasive and very confrontational. And it's only in that third episode where you really find out, oh, it's not, she's not doing this because of any sort of circumstance. It's because of what she saw in the supermarket where Karen right. killed her best friend. <laughs> and, you know, it's, she's dealing with her own PTSD and her own grief about 
the role that she played in not stopping him. And I, I love the fact that grief and guilt is introduced in nearly all of the characters, but for completely different reasons and in completely different ways. Hmm. But I guess with, with Jem, it's interesting because she starts off so completely unlikable. Like in that first episode, she's just mm-hmm. fucking unbearable. She is the worst. And you don't really understand why. But like a lot of the storylines, like the the whole series, this first series is so well-crafted that everything ends up getting paid off in that third episode where you finally it, it does. get the resolution. I like that they resolve their conflict. I also love the scene when they go to the, the parents of the girl that he killed and they're just like, Oh, that's great, because that means she's going to be alive. Ah, uh, so yeah. heartbreaking. It's grim. Because you think that they're going to get it, and you think that they're actually okay with it, and that it's going to appease uh, Kieran of his guilt, and instead it just adds a different kind of layer. <laughs> and Jim is the only one that reads the room correctly, and she's like, oh yeah, it's possible. <laughs> yeah. The moral is, never reveal your secrets. <laughs> exactly they either get you killed or they just cause further trauma denial 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 (laughs) what did you two think that this all takes place in a relatively isolated small community because the the big thing with the cured is that it obviously takes place in a big city and that's more or less like we often end up seeing zombie scenarios taking place in big metropolitan areas and then you know people hunker down in a house or a mall or something like that whereas this is like they get to play with this whole town but it's still relatively isolated a house or a mall okay so not a living dead or dawn of the dead that's that's basically (laughs) what you're going with there (laughs) or like a research facility or you know in walking dead they always end up finding like a a little town with a gate that ends up being breached at the end of every season well yeah i I stopped watching walking dead in season three so (laughs) well i kind of love that because to me it kind of tapped in it was much easier to bring in the whole bigotry side of it you know because obviously there's there's that element more in small towns anyway. And then I guess mm-hmm. everyone was banding together against the zombies in the uprising. So it kind of forged this bond for them. And I also think the way they did it in that sense, they brought in a, the religious aspect was really key. And I feel like that's much mm. of a bigger thing in small towns, you know, but everything revolves around the church and your local pastor and act, all those activities. So I felt like every scene, there was a cross in the background or there was a priest. Well, I do love that at the at the end of the day, the the vicar ends up being really the one who gets Rick killed. I mean, that's being a bit facetious because obviously he's not the one who commits the crime, but it's him suggesting that, for no reason at all, there's something else, you know? Uh, like, this show, I think, is actually very hard on religion. It's very dismissive yeah. of the controlling and manipulative abilities of the church. Yeah, like the dad actively was telling the vicar, I'll preach a barnstormer, get him to, you know, rally against him mm-hmm. again. Um, it was very manipulative. Yeah, get get my son all fired up to kill his, his gay lover. <laughs> You're just like, what the fuck? Actually, well, I mean, because that could also be why the viewership dropped in the second episode. You know, if like, because obviously, if like someone is, is like devoutly Christian and they see something that is rather hard on organized religion, like they probably like won't want to go with it again. Was this show, David? You may have a better idea, but was mm-hmm. it marketed as queer or was it marketed more of like, oh, it's zombies? As far as I remember, I think it was much more about the zombies because you know the concept itself is so mm-hmm. strong. So I, I felt they didn't, mm-hmm. they probably didn't feel the need. I mean, I might be wrong, but that's yeah. I, I think yeah. that was a surprise at the time, you know. I mean, with, without knowing, like you know, the the general consensus in the UK of you know 
like queer, the queer lifestyle of like you know may, if i could imagine maybe people went into this watching you know for zombies and then like when queer elements were introduced and it kind of seemed like that was going to be the, the angle they were taking and also because again even that first episode you can see how it clearly mirrors you know mainstream public opinion of the queer lifestyle that they might have been like oh nope not for me i'm curious did you two identify kieran as a queer man or or when did that happen for you i i honest honestly had you not told me it's a gay zombie show i probably wouldn't have gotten it that early yeah i don't think it hit me okay. straight away but i feel like maybe you know when certain characters you kind of feel like you might relate to more or you just feel but mm-hmm. you don't necessarily think they're actually going to turn out to be explicitly queer yeah i think that was kind of it for me yeah because i feel like it took me almost into the second episode because I, I remember being really emotionally devastated when it's revealed that he killed himself because then i was like oh wow we are doing a not just a queer storyline but a queer storyline in a in a small town with bigotry and we're talking about a a 17 year old who goes into a cave and killed himself and then of course again we get that really big emotional payoff where the mom finds him in the cave in the third episode and then the dad talks about discovering his body and mm-hmm. it's just, I'm not going to lie, definitely cried during the mom scene this most yeah, recent time. Sure. It's rough. It's rough. And yeah, I mean, I don't feel qualified to really talk about teen suicide, but I, we obviously have to talk about this because it is a big issue that faces, <laughs> uh, well, teenagers in general, but especially queer ones. I mean, we're recording this in Pride Month, which is... You know, the celebration of all things queer life and hopefully getting people to a place where they can love themselves and build their community and whatever from that takes. But the very real fact is places like Warden exist and they have, you know, these vulnerable at risk, not just queer youth, but maybe just queer people in general. And I I think this, this series is really brave for mm-hmm. addressing the fact that Rick dies in an IED explosion, and that's that's something that happens. And Kieran dies by committing suicide, and that's also something yeah. that happens. And like, it didn't it didn't explicitly necessarily link the suicide to him being gay in any obvious way. I mean, obviously it's inferred and implied, and I think that was kind of brave too, in a way. Okay, so and maybe I'll read it differently because it definitely reads as okay. He was upset that Rick left him, and that is pretty much like the catalyst for him committing suicide but it's not him being gay like he's not saying oh i'm gay and i can't be this way and he kills himself he's saying he feels left and abandoned and alone exactly it's like part of his identity it's part of a number of issues i think he felt being isolated in that town anyway because the town was shit but but i can see you know how uh, any criticism of like um uh what what was something that just happened oh uh, okay well (laughs) um like in game of thrones when uh you know a certain character took a a drastic dark turn that seemed out a character because her uh her boyfriend broke up with her you know they're like well that's really like stupid because oh she can't have a man and she goes crazy so i could see how someone might read this though and be like okay well so he killed himself because his pseudo boyfriend like left him which i think is what happens but it's that's also something that is real right i mean especially if you think about like we don't meet any other explicitly coded queer characters in this town like we're mm-hmm. we're meant to believe that potentially these are the only two and so if you lose 50% of the queer population 
in this really isolated northern town like that would take a toll for sure yeah like he Mm -hmm. when he broke down he was very much blaming him and like you said you left me you left me alone you know there was that whole college oh yeah um so i think yeah that oppressive atmosphere not not atmosphere you know the oppressive kind of regime almost of the town definitely plays a factor for sure i liked that confrontation in the car between them and how rick didn't know he didn't know like until he told him basically I liked that. Well, I think because you're meant to you're meant to infer that Kieran like Kieran's letters were being intercepted by Bill or right. potentially mm. by the military. So that it's another layer of not just miscommunication between the two of them and how they're just not connecting in the way that, you know, they could and it would make their lives so much better, but the fact that their their destinies were effectively being controlled by systems or people that were designed to keep them apart i do like too that it's not um because a, a tendency with media to portray suicide like in a narrative like situation uh it, it can tend to get suicide porny uh, yeah this was no 13 reasons why <laughs> that, i was li- i was literally gonna i was like it's not like 13 reasons why which admittedly i do like that show but i'm fully aware of its problems fully aware same, of it. same. um <laughs> And so, yeah, this one I thought I thought handled the subject matter very delicately and respectfully. It's interesting, too, because the genre opportunities allow them to open up the dialogue about the impact of suicide with the person who technically shouldn't be involved in that discussion, right? Mm-hmm. Like, by having Kieran be a zombie, he can actually come back and have to face that. And it's tricky. Like I love the scene with the mom because I think it does play to the the sensibilities of the relationships that gay men have with their mothers often. Mm-hmm. And that one was the one that really got me. But seeing the dad really break down and talk about what it was like to discover him and to hold him in his arms and have Kieran be able to apologize because he, I mean, it, it's always dangerous to blame people who commit suicide by yeah. calling them selfish or not thinking about the impact that it would have on the people that they left behind. But it's, I think, also encouraging to say, you know what, it will affect everybody. Like, Because it's so hard when you're struggling with mental illness that you can't see outside of your own experience. So being able to address that and have that family come to catharsis and I don't know, like I, I thought it was really... It was an emotional through line that paid off really, really well mm. for me, particularly since the mom and the dad aren't hugely significant characters. Like, you don't mm. get too, too much of them. Well, and, uh, you know, that, that's why there's a stigma on mental illness, though, because people are incapable of putting themselves... Because, I mean, you know, like, I, I know several people that suffer from depression, and I've never suffered from it, so it, it's hard for me to understand what that feels like. And I feel like anyone who's never suffered from any kind of mental illness they are so unwilling to try to put themselves in the shoes or even imagine what that would feel like, which is why people with mental illness like are afraid to be open about it, which is why when you see celebrities come out about their situation, it's so refreshing. Which I think the show is also doing a decent job of addressing. Like, It doesn't really spell it out, but you definitely get the impression that there is something really wrong with Bill. To me, he's almost he's almost the most interesting character on the show because he's just so repressed and in denial about absolutely everything, and yet he has the strongest strength of his convictions of anyone on the entire series. Well, and you know what he reminded me of was um y'all seen American Beauty, right? Yeah, yeah. The um the Chris Cooper character in American Beauty, who you know is clearly a repressed homosexual and like can't deal with it. 
I mean, they never really addressed that with Bill, but I could see that easily being a reading. I mean, yeah, and that's how the, the hypocrisy complained to that as well, because he's so desperate to deny himself in every facet. Like when he runs into the pub and he's like pints all around, and everyone's like not just not saying a thing. Yeah, <laughs> there's definitely that extra layer. I fucking said pints all around. <laughs> yeah. like, all right, mate. <laughs> People are just quiet. Yeah. But um, yeah, and but I wonder, I, was he in the second season at all? The dad, I don't really remember. Do you? Oh gosh, I can't remember. I feel like he and the wife aren't around. He can't be around unless he like gets right. Re- oh, but that would have been a good avenue to take though if he got resurrected. Well, but they clarify that it's that was one of the interesting things about the zombie lore in this series is that it only affected people up to a certain point. Right, like that's why oh, yeah. the Lancasters have so much difficulty processing what's happened to their daughter, like what Kieran did to. Uh, think her name's lisa because yeah he killed her after like the zombies stopped rising which i think is also very interesting right because typically zombie lore tells that you know once it begins everybody can become a zombie everybody can be reanimated well then you're really dealing with the issue with overpopulation (laughs) yeah yeah i I guess that was necessary to like (laughs) otherwise they're fucked I can see why they wouldn't include the mother in the second series if they don't, but it would have been an interesting avenue to, avenue to take. However, if it expands on the world as much as y'all are saying it does, I can see, like, we, you know, she might not fit into the equation as much. Yeah, I will say, the if people enjoyed this first series, I personally don't find the second series quite as compelling, just because it, it does broaden the scope into more political realm. Mm. But I will say that if you enjoyed this first series, it is worth checking out the second one, if only because the quote-unquote villain of the second series is so hissably hateable. Like, I live to hate her. It's a black woman who comes to town. She's a politician, and she has very strong ideas about how the PDS people should be handled. And then, of course, uh, Kieran gets a new love interest who is far more also politically motivated because he's involved with the undead prophet. So that stuff with gotcha. the, the experimental drug, the the zombie guy who's on uh, the website who's talking about, you know, instilling rebellion. And then this new politician woman really brings everything to a head. I can't remember, though. David, does that second series kind of end on a cliffhanger? I remember thinking like, oh, I can't wait to watch the third series and then being very pissed off. It, it kind of does. It's one of those weird ones where you're like, oh, you can see that the, there's a, like a huge seed, but like... It's also, if you want to see that as the ending, it still works. Personally, I think. Yeah. But like, it was a bit frustrating regardless. I was like, give me season three. But I know. I was trying to think of like, what, what's the shit that ended recently? Oh, actually. Oh, another zombie show. Fucking um, Santa Clarita Diet. Like, uh, <laughs> oh, I love that show. Like, <laughs> I know. And fuck Netflix for canceling it. Because, I mean, it kind of works, I guess, as a series finale. But it's definitely a cliffhanger. So it's like, god damn it. Ugh. Actually, yeah, when I think about it, in the flesh, it's a bit like that, to be honest. You're like, yeah, you're like, give me more, give yeah. me more, but okay, it's kind of an ending. All right, fine. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's almost more frustrating when you can see the potential. Like, I mean, that's one of the reasons why, at the end of the day, I it's hilarious because I do podcasts, two different podcasts about movies, but my heart is really, like, I'm a television guy because I love the capacity for you know, character building and world building and the opportunity to say, okay, we've we put a pin on this story, but there's so much more that we're going to tell you in successive seasons or series. Mm-hmm. And 
like I think one of the reasons for me that in the flesh works as well as it does is because you get to spend more time. Like if you watch The Cured, it feels fucking rushed as hell like it is frantic to try to introduce this premise give you compelling characters build up relationships you know it the acceleration with which the rebellion like the zombie rebellion that happens in that film it's so fast Mm. that you're just like (laughs) i ended up giving that movie a three out of five because it was one of those i was like okay it's fine and i think i think had that movie left out the rebellion it would have been better if it was just a contained story between these two people. I guess yeah. three if you count the kid. Like, that would have been more interesting and you could devote more time to it. I get the need to do the rebellion because that then goes into more, like, standard zombie territory as yeah, they uprise. Yeah, the bombastic conflict that you need to get right. people excited. Yeah. But, yeah, there's not enough time in, like, what I'm assuming is probably a 100-minute movie, maybe more, maybe less, to, you know, put all that in there. Mm. Yeah, it was a bit much. I mean, and I assume a sequel isn't on the cards ever either. No, I doubt yeah. it. Yeah. I don't think it did very well. It never really got a, a wide release, though. So I mean, yeah, I, I saw it at Fantastic Fest, but it did get a, I think it was like a VOD release. But I mean, yeah, if you're going to rob from In the Flash, you know, fair enough, I guess. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, it's still a really cool concept. And I mean, like, you know, if we get fucking something else out of it. I mean, hell, if America re, re, like remade this show, I'd watch it just to see. I mean, also because... Any kind of remake I'm all, from like you know foreign to domestic, it's um, I'm always interested to see like how they adapt the cultural, like the specific cultural parts of it, which is also why Joe and I have discussed like how sometimes like the the J horror stuff doesn't translate very well because so much of those are inherently Asian or Japanese, um, like it doesn't work over here. But I feel mm-hmm. like from Britain to America, it wouldn't be quite as crazy. Yeah, and yet the number of failed adaptations in the U.S. of uk properties is really quite high <laughs> yeah yeah uh, <laughs> within the flesh I, I a lot of it is kind of there is a british element to it i don't know i and i can't really yeah obviously, obviously but like, i mean in its core i mean like and i can't really pinpoint necessarily why it's except that northern setting in particular and that small town vibe mm-hmm. maybe because mm-hmm. um i'm from the uk but i really it really resonates no, i really yeah. like just feel like i know that kind of place even if i didn't live there myself um, so yeah, I mean, right. I don't think it'd be impossible to remake in America, but I think it would be really interesting to see if the core of it can carry over. You know, it, there's so many little bits. Like even um, there's a bit I noticed when Gems walk in and they're talking about white lightning and like drinking these big bottles of cider, and it just took me back to when I was like oh, yeah. too young and doing the same thing and like yeah, <laughs> on, like on the beach. Yeah. But that's the thing though. Whenever you're doing a remake like that, I feel like the ones that are less successful are the ones that try to hold on to those like very specific, you know, mm. culturally things true, true. because they don't work over here so if you're gonna do that you have to really make it like completely not completely different but like lose those aspects and try to make it your own it's same if, if a british if someone in britain was you know remaking something for america you know like you'd have to get rid of the whatever like the americanness of it to fit your your culture for sure yeah for sure. it was interesting david so you you may or may not have heard it because uh trace and i did a patreon episode on the curse of la Llorona. oh yeah and we ended up having this big discussion about just how poorly it's not an adaptation obviously of another film but it's an adaptation of a mexican folklore Mm, and the mistake that they make is that they just set it in the most blandly generic looking los angeles neighborhood (laughs) and you're like why would they not have given this its own distinct character like set it in a place that makes sense and i think that's one of the dangers that they do right is like if this 
if this was remade in the US, I think we'd end up in, it'd be like some Twin Peaksian kind of Northwest. No, town see, and... <laughs> I, I think it would be a Southern state. I, I really think it would be a Southern state. But you, the, the La Llorona comparison is not quite the same, though, because that is a Mexican folklore tale. You can't, you can't make that American, which is what that movie kind of tries to do. <laughs> but it's, it's like so when, in our Fatal Frame episode, you know, we talked about you know uh, the Grudge and how that was. Well, the Ring was actually very successful because like that that aspect of the ring wasn't inherently Japanese so you could translate that to America whereas with the grudge like the idea of that curse is inherently Japanese so they have to put Sarah Michelle Gellar's character in Japan as like the the ignorant white lady mm-hmm. but which I maintain still kind of works and I'm I'm, it, it I'm hopeful that we can maybe talk about that if the new grudge movie ever ever comes out, out. <laughs> <laughs> but but like the I so I get it. I mean, it's obviously a thin line, like when adapting, like because you you don't want to appropriate the culture, you don't want to insult the culture, you don't want to completely ignore the culture. But mm. I mean, and that's why it's hard to do something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's interesting between like America and the UK as well because they're more similar. I think in some ways, right. it makes it actually harder because yeah. you. Like, I feel like either way, they feel like oh, we can pretty much do a straight remake because we are similar. But actually, no, there are key elements necessarily that aren't. Yeah. Whereas hopefully, at least for the Japanese or the Mexican ones, at least you would hope that they would try to acknowledge the difference more. But Well, I mean, and like that's why I would argue like what helps the Grudge remake is that it's at least set in Japan. So like, there's that. Well, I think the other big thing is the language, right? Like, that's why the assumption is that properties between the UK and North America can translate easily is because we're all speaking the same language, which yeah. of course is not at all really true because even things like if if in the flesh was remade you wouldn't call them rotters like that to me is so distinctively british (laughs) for sure and i love that i mean i don't love the term but i love the aspect of it yeah Yeah. well i mean and y'all say series instead of season it's madness pandemonium (laughs) i can barely understand it Well, I mean, Joe, even like like Canada and America, I mean, I'm sorry, Canada and the United States, because obviously Canada is part of North America. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, like, Canada and the U.S. is more similar than the U.S. and Britain, but there are still distinct differences between the two cultures. Yeah, I mean, this is this is why we have things like national cinema, or we have, you know, people who hail, claim to hail from like certain parts even of individual countries. Like, I feel like people could watch In the Flesh and you could miss the fact that they say that they're from the North or that they're a small town in the North and still Mm. really, I think you could still understand everything that's happening. But I do think that if like people who are from the UK who identify as either being from the North or the South are going to, they're going to get a little bit more from that distinction. Like it's not just a small town. It's a small town in the north and that means something different right yeah yeah absolutely it definitely adds another layer i think um if it had been set in the south obviously the south there's also small villages and ignorance and all those themes but yeah there is something intrinsically northern about that that is instantly identifiable i think to anyone british well i think um david at the top of the episode you know you asked if uh, there were any kind of like british isms that like we didn't understand and yeah. I, well, see, that's, I don't remember any specific ones, but I'm wondering if, like, subconsciously, like, I would hear them and be like, I don't know what that meant, but it's probably just some British thing, and I just, like, forgot it. <laughs> or in Trace's case, he probably just says, uh, I'm not bothered. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote down a couple, because I was just wondering Ooh. if, like... Because I thought maybe I might forget as well, and then, like, um, there's a bit where they say, oh, we're faffing around in the woods. You know, I... I oh, faffing. yeah. I, 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 I... Is that just, like... 
walking around the woods, like playing around, or like fucking no, around. No, no, it's um. Well, yeah, it's more like fucking around. You're like um, you're wasting time. You're faffing around. You're pissing around. Yeah. Okay. So um. I mean, little, yeah, little things like that. Maybe. Context clues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wait, no, no. Wait, give us some more. Do you have more? Oh yeah, yeah. I have a couple. Um, well, I th- again, I guess some of them are quite obvious, but it's just they're that's just okay. so weirdly British. Like, uh, he calls them a soft tart. <laughs> yeah, as an insult at one point, you know. Yeah, like a um, sissy. Think, Is that like kind of what? Yeah, yeah. I think the, yeah, I mean, tart can also be like a slut. Like, uh, oh, right. yes. yeah, like, oh, you're being such a tart. But it's a very old fashioned way to say it. You know, you wouldn't necessarily, if you said it to someone, it's not like a swear word. You wouldn't be like destroyed emotionally if that happened. But, <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> Out of curiosity, does it also have connotations to like a, a badly prepared pastry? Like, is it, can you also interpret it literally? Like, nobody wants a soft tart. <laughs> Do you know I never thought that? But <laughs> I think, I think absolutely. I think that's the way forward. Well, I mean, I think tart is is definitely more like oh, you you big slag or something like that. Now, Joe, yeah, yeah, I'm 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 the literal one, and like you that that you just did. <laughs> did that. Look, I contain multitudes. I'm a very multifaceted person. Good, but what kind of tart would you want then? If it's not soft, like a firm tart, chewy, like, chewy, crumbly, crumbly? Cr- oh, crumbly, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I, all of my cooking shows say crumbly. that's gross um (laughs) no i actually like softer things like like when i I always get the chewy chips ahoy cookies i hate like the the regular ones because i don't like crispy i I want like i want soft baked goods fair enough not relevant to the conversation Yeah. Oh. Oh. Well, um. I re- I wanted to say I really, really loved a scene in the first episode at the end. You know when um the old lady is dragged down to the street. What did you guys think oh. of? Oh, that? it's uh, yeah. so good. It's funny because it feels kind of like a one-off. Like you're meant to. Like I remember the first time I watched it, I thought, okay, so this is the cue that it's serious. Like people are legitimately endangered if they're. They're sorry. They're legitimately in danger if they don't cover themselves up. If they don't try to blend in, like this is what happens uh, if ignorance and bigotry is allowed to run amok. Like people will die. But it felt like a one-off. And then to see it come again, full circle. Like I, I really can't praise the writing of the third episode and how well it pays off even incidental things from previous episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, because really. I, I feel like I had forgotten about that guy until Kieran discovers Rick's body and you see him looking at the yeah. window. And you're like, and you're oh, like put, oh, put that in your back shit. pocket. <laughs> yeah, like, that seems meaningful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting. They, so, yeah, they don't really acknowledge it that much up until the end, but it still felt very natural. Really, oh, yeah. Like, had that through line. And then you have that one guy that's, like, you know, locked behind the gate and he's like, whoa, man, like, sorry. It's like, I. D- leave me alone i love that entire thing because it would be really easy to dismiss that as just comic relief because that character is such a joke but (laughs) you know it it a does a really good job of playing up some of the comedy of just having this idiot be behind bars and the way that people treat him but it also is such a sly commentary on this is all it takes to switch from the side of being right and i'm doing quotations that you can't see and then being one of them being the other like oh he got bitten he's been put into quarantine and all of a sudden all of these people who know him just treat him like shit right 
And he, like, he nearly dies. I mean, I don't know that they play it up well enough, but, like, they just leave him in there, and then he could have died of his diabetes because he doesn't, (laughs) no one helps him. Yeah. I think it's it's also really interesting because it shows how there's still so many misconceptions. Even though the uprising happened years before, people Mm -hmm. still don't really fully understand the mechanics, and there's a lot of, um... That the power of rumors in a village like that, and uh, and it kind of also sets up the whole scene with Lisa's parents. Although yes. I can't remember if it's before or after, but you know it sets up that idea that they don't know either, and that's why they're so hopeful. Yeah, well, and why everyone is so fearful because they they yeah. fear the thing that they don't understand. It pays back what Amy was talking about uh, at the rides as well, right? Right. All right. Well. I think I, we're running a little long. So do y'all want to get any more yayas out about lingering thoughts on In the Flesh before we wrap up? I would just say, I mean, I, I hope that people have obviously watched at least the first series. I'd love to hear what people thought of this if they went in not really knowing much about it. Because I think it'd be really easy to have A, not heard of this, but B, just kind of dismiss it as like, oh, okay, it's just like a random zombie TV show. But I think to me, it's... It's a really great uh, indicator of the kinds of potential that long-form narratives have uh, for telling the kind of interesting genre stories that we don't often see. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was... And done. <laughs> that was very thorough. I, I have nothing, literally nothing to add to that. <laughs> I know. I'm like, okay, cool. That that That's in the flesh. Um... <laughs> and also world peace. <laughs> Um, but no, I mean, I, I I agree. I think it's a very good show. I mean, I, I, I do want to watch the second series, and I'll probably get around to it eventually. Because again, only six episodes, so it's like, you know, a, at least half of a regular season for me. Um, but yeah, I, I would recommend, if you if for some reason, if you've made it all the way through this episode and you haven't watched the first season series, go ahead and do that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You'll get it one of these days, Trace. Uh, well, maybe. So um, before we get into what we're covering next week, uh, David, this is a time where you can plug anything you want. Well, I do have a couple of potential projects coming, but it kind of depends on some yeses from other people first. So I'm not... So ba- yeah, basically I have nothing except to say, come find me on Twitter at, at David Opie, which is O-P-I-E, and I look forward to chatting with you. And thank you so much for having me, both of you as well. I really appreciate uh, it. Yeah, of course. Pleasure. And I mean, and if you don't, if you want, I can cut this out, but I believe congratulations are in order because you are getting married soon. Yes, that, that's a big project. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, then, I don't know um, if that's too personal or not. So I mean, like, that's like, I got no, it I mean, that's totally fine. No, yeah, I'm getting married next month, so I'm super excited. So, Yay, yeah, so that, that's partly. Thank you so much. Yeah, so that's partly why things are all a bit up in the air because um, I haven't had as much time to do work, and yeah, it's a lot going on. I'm going to get married in the Alps as well, which is just insane. Oh my god, so jealous. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, it's all my fiance. Like, I'm just from this boring town in England. <laughs> <laughs> But I will say, listeners, if you if you want some like top tier Austrian like landscape pornography, I strongly encourage you to follow David because he regularly posts pictures of the countryside and it's absolutely stunning. Alps porn. Alps porn. Yes. Hashtag. <laughs> Hashtag Alps porn. <laughs> Oh man! Well, um, well, look at that, that's a good transition though, because uh, if you would like to follow us on Twitter, you can reach me at Traced Thurman. And I'm at Beast on my remote. That's the letter B. 
And if you're tweeting about the podcast, please be sure to use the hashtag horrorqueers in your tweets so we can find you, or you can email us at horrorqueers at gmail.com. If you have two seconds, please head over to iTunes and leave us a rating or a review if you have a little bit more time. Uh, and of course, if you like what you've listened to and want even more content, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash horrorqueers where you can sign up for some exclusive bonus episodes. Uh, by the time this episode drops, we will have new episodes on Ari Aster's Midsummer, And... Also dropping this week is our episode on Alexander Aja's Crawl. Yay, Aquatic Corp. I'm so excited. Uh, Joe, mm-hmm. <laughs> did, yeah. Joe, what are we covering next week? All right. So we are leaving the British countryside behind. Uh, we are going to be diving into problematic child territory with Yom Colette Sarah's Orphan, which is celebrating its 10-year anniversary. Yay! I'm excited for this one. I haven't seen it since theaters, so I'm I'm intrigued to see how it holds up on t- on a ten year watch. Yeah, it's uh, it's still yeah, batshit crazy. <laughs> I watched it last yeah. year, and it it's everything you remember and more. Yay! Well, also like Vera Vera Farmiga before she really kind of blew up with. Well, I mean she's always been around, but like you know, like I feel like that put her in the mainstream. Yeah, it's a pre conjuring. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, cool. Well, um, I guess uh, we can cross out. In the flesh. Yes, and cross out horror queer. This episode was brought to you by the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network, delivering your weekly horror podcast fix. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit bloodydisgusting.com backslash podcast network.